Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading the book Father Ten Boom, God's Man by Corey Ten Boom, with permission of Lighthouse Trails Publishing Company and the Ten Boom Foundation. We're on Chapter 3, William Ten Boom, 1816-1892. William, Garrett's son, had just turned 12 when the family left the Bronstead estate and settled in the center of Harlem. It must have been hard for the family to leave the beautiful green gardens of Bronstead and adapt to the busy street of a small town. However, little William would never have made a good gardener. Small and slightly built with crossed eyes, he was the opposite of his husky father. William's wife told her children that it took her years to decide whether William was looking at her or at someone else. His father, Garrett, had often tried to let William hold the rings while driving the horse-drawn carriage, but the poor fellow was so clumsy that his younger sister, Cato, had to take over. A close relationship developed between William and Cato. They often wrote each other letters, some of which had been preserved. In these, they shared their inner struggles and doubts, their victories of faith, and their gratitude for God's goodness in their daily lives. Soon after the family moved to Harlem, a place was found for young William as an apprentice in a watch repair shop. Until that time, William's education had been very limited. But by the age of 12, he had learned to read, write, and do arithmetic. In his generation, that was a significant intellectual attainment. My father noted, I still have a few of my father's school books, and it is clear to me that he did not learn to read merely by means of the Bible and the Harlem newspaper, as was customary in those days. The beautiful handwriting and excellent style of his language, as found in his letters from his adult years, tell us that he probably pursued his education on his own at every opportunity. The year 1837 marked an important milestone in my grandfather William's life. With a working capital of 100 guilders granted to him by his parents, 21-year-old William opened his own watch shop in the Bartolierstraat, Harlem. The stage was set for the young watchmaker to marry and have his own family. When four years later he married Gertrude, he appeared to be moving toward the time of great prosperity. The business was growing, and watch owners in Harlem often chose to have their timepieces repaired by the happy, well-dressed Mr. Tinboom. Clouds and Sunshine on the Bayet Among the oldest letters found in the chest were some written by my grandfather, William Tinboom, to his sister Cato. Since their theme was usually the Lord, these letters tell us about the spiritual atmosphere in which my father grew up. Their life was not easy. In the first 14 years of their marriage, Gertrude gave birth to 13 children, of which eight died at birth or a very young age. Gertrude suffered from tuberculosis, and since the youngest child always slept in the crib at the foot of the bed, the infection was easily transmitted. On the death of one of the children, William wrote to his sister, Dearest Cato, this morning at four o'clock, the Lord took our darling away from us. We had so much hope for improvement, but this was not what God ordained. God has strengthened us during all these events. We have truly found that in him there is grace and power. He is a solid rock in all our need. I have nothing to say since I know for sure he has allowed it. His dealings are wise and loving, full of majesty and glory. Knowing this gives me strength. In another letter to Cato, William tells about his deep inner struggles. Dear Sister, I am going through tremendous ups and downs. I do so long to live in closer communion with the Lord of Eternity. But because of sin and unbelief, I miss the light and life 
in my soul. For my heart is so terribly proud, such as an enemy of all that is good. I must say with Paul, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Oh, my sister and friend, what a sad picture. However, I can say with John Newton, although not with as much faith as he did, my condition is painful but not mortal. I will not die but live, for I have a gracious unfailing physician. Gertrude died. Two years later, William married Elizabeth, who had been the housekeeper for the Bree family for some time. She was young, energetic, and an excellent housewife. This was helpful for the frequent illnesses had been a severe strain on the family budget, and William's financial situation was precarious. Business was not good. William had bought the house in the Bartle Jurstrat in 1849 for 1,200 guilders. In addition, he had to feed a large family. Soon, Elizabeth was expecting her first baby, and in due time, one could peer in through the scanty light in the bedroom behind the watch shop and see a baby boy. Since there was already a William among the sons of grandfather's first marriage, this little boy was named Casper. Now that his household was under the orderly management of a young wife, William could look ahead with renewed courage and give himself to some of the activities in the kingdom of God that he loved. His letters to Cato became less depressed, often carrying a joyful note of victory. Dear Cato, last week I was on an errand outside of town and had to walk right across the sand dunes. Suddenly the sky filled with black clouds. A terrible thunderstorm was imminent. It thundered continuously. I took shelter in the shack and looked about me. I saw a tree struck by lightning, and the violent wind broke many branches. I stood there quietly, thunder and lightning all around me. All at once I was reminded of the majestic coming of the Lord on the clouds of heaven. Oh, what glory I saw. I thought of the day when I will see him and cry out, My Redeemer and my Savior. Cato, then we will be delivered from this body of sin. That day will come, and every day brings us nearer to it. In the middle of the 19th century, Holland was a scene of fresh revival movement that had a lasting effect on the Ten Boom family. In the Helmstrad, Nicholas Beats preached the gospel under such anointing that many Harlemsters, among them the Ten Booms, flocked to the nearby town to hear him. The name Dew Trappers was given to those members of the Harlem population who sought spiritual refreshment in Helmstead. These words literally mean those who go out into the country while the dew is still wet on the grass. The street that went from Harlem to Helmstead in those days cannot be compared to the asphalt highways, which are there now. Those who wanted to hear Nicholas Beats had to walk through a lot of mud. One of the fruits of the new spiritual awakening was the springing up of many organizations for the spreading of the gospel and for the helping of those who were socially underprivileged. My grandfather became one of the founding board members of the Society for the Christian Home Visitation and remained active in that capacity until his death. Grandfather also became an elder of his church in Harlem. Being the first elected elder of an orthodox conviction, he was in for a fierce battle. He courageously witnessed against rationalism, modernism, and unbelief, which were then characteristic of most of the formal churches in the Netherlands. He took a vital interest in the support of young people studying for evangelistic and pastoral ministries and spent much time visiting wealthy people to obtain contributions for these projects. Prayers for Israel In 1844, William started a weekly prayer meeting for Israel. 
It's not at all unusual for Christians to have prayer meetings for Jews in our modern times. But it was so unusual at that time that Father even remembered what year Grandfather started his prayer group. The Jews had found refuge in Holland ever since the first Prince of Orange delivered our country from Spanish rule in the 17th century. Holland became a land of freedom and security for oppressed people from many countries. The Jews settled mainly in Amsterdam and even called the city the New Jerusalem. We can never know how God will answer our prayers, but we can expect that he will get us involved in his plan for the answer. If we are true intercessors, we must be ready to take part in God's work on behalf of the people for whom we pray. One hundred years after William began his prayer meetings, his son, four grandchildren, and a great-grandchild were arrested in the same house where the prayer meeting started because they had saved Jewish people from Adolf Hitler's plan to kill them. Four of those arrested died in prison. That was the divine but incomprehensible answer to my family's prayers for the Jewish people. My nephew Peter and I found letters that told us much about the background of the prayer meetings for Israel. I found these sentences in one of Father's letters. As long as I can remember, the portrait of Isaac de Costa has been hanging in our living room. This man of God, with his burning heart for Israel, his own people, has had a strong influence on my family. Isaac de Costa, a Jew of Portuguese descent, was converted to Christianity and immediately set out to fight the spiritual forces that govern the Dutch people. He was a brilliant lawyer and a famous poet. As a result of the Enlightenment and the French Revolution, Europe had put reason above Bible. Consequently, there was a general relaxing of godly standards in all levels of society. Immediately after his conversion, da Costa wrote a book entitled Objections Against the Spirit of This Age. The theme was taken from Scripture. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against the spiritual wickedness in high places. Ephesians 6.12 Immediately, a storm of protest and contempt broke loose upon the courageous young lawyer. He was mocked and scorned in the press. A small circle of Hollanders stood with DaCosta. Among these were the Ten Boom family. For these Christians, the clarion call of DaCosta meant the beginning of a new revival movement that left its mark on the whole spiritual atmosphere of 19th century Holland. The Bible was restored to the, its place of authority as the Word of God. In 1851, DaCosta attended the World Conference of the Evangelical Alliance in London. Two days were set aside there to discuss the work among Jews in the various countries represented. In the detailed report of this conference, I found an address by DaCosta, which clearly states the reasons why he founded a number of prayer groups for Israel in various cities of the Netherlands. Here are a few thoughts from his interesting speech. Brethren, I see you are all rejoicing in the blessings of Christian fellowship. Even so, I have come here to ask for tears, tears and prayers. Yes, I myself must shed tears in your midst, for there is one nation which has not been represented at this great international gathering. It is God's own beloved people of Israel. Let us remember that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now interceding for us at the throne of God, was born a Jew in a Jewish family in the nation of Israel. It is true that Israel missed God's target and was, for a time, set aside and dispersed among the nations. But the day will come when they will fall at the feet of their Messiah in true repentance and live. On this occasion of the great exhibition, the Christians of Great Britain have called the nations together on their territory. 
the time will come when the king of the Jews will call a holy gathering in Jerusalem. This is not human imagination, but God's own words to the witness of another Jew, the Apostle Paul. He expresses this expectation in Romans 11.15. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? We all agree that strong bond ties us to Israel. As to the past, Christianity is the fruit, an offshoot from the old people of God. As to the present, it is not Israel's existence among the nations. Despite centuries of hostility and persecution, one of the strongest proofs against the world's unbelief. And as to the future, how clearly the fulfillment of God's promise for Israel is related to the future of the world and the coming of the kingdom of Christ. Well then, brethren, for these reasons I dare come to you with an earnest plea. It is a custom in Israel at certain great feasts to keep an open seat for the prophet Elijah. I request that you reserve an open seat for Israel in our midst today. You lions of England and Scotland, Give full honor to the lion from the tribe of Judah who has conquered you. You, morning watchers of the French people, announce the dawn of the day of his coming. You harp of Ireland, lead us in the song of expectation and longing for God's church. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Come to bless and gather all the peoples of the world, also the long-rejected Israel, in their midst. Amen. DaCosta's work influenced my grandfather William to become one of the founders of the Society for Israel. Father often told me, love for the Jews was spoon-fed to me from my very youngest years. As a result, deep respect and love for the Jews became a part of our home life. How important childhood impressions are. Over the years, we often experience the truth of God's promise to Abraham. I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him who cursed thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Genesis 12:3. During the second half of the 19th century, the Jewish people slowly awakened to the need to return to their homeland. What had seemed to be an absolute impossibility for 19 centuries, the establishment of the Jewish state in Israel, the land of the patriots, now became the vision of an Austrian reporter, Theodor Herzl. Herzl was not motivated by religious reasons. He thought only of the survival for the Jews, but for the return of the Jews to Zion was the beginning of the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel's restoration. Is it presumptuous to think that a small prayer meeting in Harlem was connected to these events? I believe that God delights to use his children in the fulfillment of his plans for the world. I am sure he loves to use small people to do great things. How honored I am to be a part of his plan. Chapter 4, The Shape of Character In his diary, Father writes about his parents, his childhood, and his teenage years spent in the little Bayet. Before the Bayet was enlarged, it did not afford much room for the large family. Father's childhood was not easy, but because of it, he learned to appreciate the good things in his life and to find happiness in small blessings. Writing about his childhood, he tells, A well-known psychologist once said, When a child reaches his third birthday... His parents will give him half of all they will ever be able to give him in the way of education. When I arrived on the scene, our small house in the Bartolorestrat was already crowded. Father's first wife, Gertrude, had died at the age of 40, leaving five children. I was the first child of the new marriage, and five more children were born after me. Early in his second marriage, my father's business fared poorly. But my mother was a vigorous woman with a strong will and lots of perseverance. 
She was an able seamstress and made all the underwear and linen clothes that were needed. I always wore clothes which had been handed down from my father or from one of my brothers, after mother had altered them to fit me. Mother was extremely economical and thrifty. Vegetables, meat, and other groceries were very expensive at that time, and she organized the household in such a way that living costs were kept to a bare minimum. Sunday was the only day we had a large, really tasty meal. During the week, the noon meal was often the same for weeks on end. Rice, grouts, brown beans, and occasionally a small piece of bacon. On our birthdays, we would have a special meal. My first memories go back to the time when I lay in a small crib, which had been built squarely across my parents' bedstead, just above the foot of their bed. The bed was built inside a closet, and the doors of which were left open while I was in my crib. I remember how I'd wake up on Sunday mornings and look at the shop from my crib. From my vantage point, I had a view of the living room and even the shop, when the doors that divided our living room from the shop were opened. During the week, the shutters of the shop windows were closed, but on Sunday they were left open, and a blue striped curtain was lowered. How I enjoyed this special Sunday atmosphere. On Saturday evenings, I was bathed and dressed in clean clothes. My mother always put a dash of brandy into the bath water. That particular smell and the fact that I received clean clothes made it all a real treat. At the age of 12, I became an apprentice in my father's watch repair shop. He was a good-natured man, but a strict teacher. I am thankful that I learned punctuality from him. He was very exact and required this from his apprentice and employees. When working, he was completely absorbed by what he was doing and talked very little. I never heard my father speak much about his conversion. Once he told us about a man who asked when he had been saved. And the man's answer was, I was saved more than 19 centuries ago. It happened when the Lord Jesus died on the cross for me and rose from the dead. It is true that the ground of our salvation lies in Christ's accomplished work. But Father knew about the need of personal acceptance of Jesus Christ as Savior. From his notebook, we have an account of his own spiritual experience. I always went to church with my father. Pastor Bronsville came to Harlem about 1870, and from my earliest childhood, I enjoyed his sermons. Although they did not provide great spiritual blessing for me, his beautiful language and style, combined with great simplicity, were a delight to me. Later, I attended his catechism class and became a member of his church, where Father was an elder. When I was confirmed at the age of 18, I had already asked Jesus to come into my heart. I must have been about 17 when an evangelist named Deruder came to spend a few days with us. He needed a shave, and I took him to the barbershop belonging to the father of one of our friends. On the way, Brother DeRuder suddenly turned to me. Casper, do you love the Lord? I answered him with a wholeheartedly yes. I believe that was the day of my conversion. A short time afterwards, I went to Ermolo for a vacation in the home of Pastor Winnevine. On Sunday morning, there was a celebration of the Lord's Supper. I had a great desire to participate and tell Brother DeRuder about it. He talked to the pastor who had no objections as long as one condition was fulfilled. Before I could partake of the Lord's Supper, I had to make a public confession of my faith. I did this, and it was an important step for me. When I later made my confession in my home church, it was for the second time. Now that I found the Lord, or rather He found me, I was more interested in spiritual things than before. I spent many evenings talking to my friend Hodegrink, who was a theological student in Amsterdam, where DaCosta was teaching. He shared with me what he learned from DaCosta. In this way, I received some theological training.
father's business. When my father, Casper, was 18 years old, he went to Amsterdam to start a jewelry store in a poor section of the city. He had no money, no business experience, but did have a love for adventure, wide-opened eyes for the people around him. The house where he started his business was small, so he found a room and board with some Amsterdam people. He lived in the Jewish section of Amsterdam, made contact with his neighbors very quickly, and was accepted by them to such an extent that he was invited to join in their Jewish celebrations. He joined a Christian young men's group where he established lifetime friendships with several of the leaders. They started to work among the poor people called Tothild Asphalt for the salvation of the people. And its headquarters are still in existence today, nearly 100 years later. Father's great love for Amsterdam and the people of the city started at that time and never dwindled. The organization contacted students in Amsterdam University, and these students started to help him in the Tothild Asphalt work inviting Father to work in their Sunday school. It was in that Sunday school that Father met Cor Litting, a teacher of one of the classes. He soon married her, and in 1884, the happy couple settled in a small house in Amsterdam. Outwardly, the marriage was the beginning of years of trial for Father and Mother. They lived in a small watch shop on the back street with few passerbys. They had heavy debts and suffered through Mother's poor health. Any one of these conditions can make for an unhappy home, but father and mother were close to each other, and they found their inner happiness does not depend on outward circumstances. Solomon was right when he said, Better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. Proverbs 15:16. When the babies came one after the other, there were many reasons to worry. However, both father and mother increasingly enjoyed life, for they knew the art of living. Here are some lines from a letter which father wrote to mother when she was on vacation in the country in 1887. What tremendous happiness we have in our children and in all of our family. The Lord is so good to us. It is my greatest joy to know that wherever we be, you and I, the Lord looks down on us with favor and kindness and that his spirit lives in us. My dear wife, you are such an endless worth to me. I have no time to write more now. Enjoy the flowers and the plants and the singing of the birds, knowing they are a foretaste of heaven. Enjoy them and as for me, do not worry at all. Fortunately, one more day of my solitude has come to its end. And from another letter written a year later by my father, I hope the Lord will bring days and years of prosperity to us. Still, we have nothing to complain about, for his loving kindness to us is immeasurable. My prayer for you, my dear wife, is that the Lord may bless the medicines you take and complete your healing. How we shall thank him if you prove to be healed. But whatever the outcome, we shall thank him, because all of his doings are pure love. The important thing is that we live pure lives through his grace, that we grow pure, and that we come closer and closer to God. We must desire this with our whole hearts, for it is his will. I greatly long to have you home again and near to my heart. But if you need it, get more rest and stay until you are stronger. But know how greatly I long for you. I kiss and embrace you with all of my heart. And so do little Betsy and little William. Mother kept a diary about her children. It was not strictly a diary because sometimes she made only one entry a year. But what a precious book it was to us when she presented it to her children on her 25th anniversary. It gave such insight into her heart. She wrote, November 13, 1887. Our children are getting dearer every day. Three-year-old Betsy is a darling. She talks and sings the whole day long. 
It's so nice to hear. I think she's very intelligent because she learns so quickly and notices everything. Our William is also a lovely child. He cannot walk yet, as Betsy did when she was a year old. This week he cut two teeth. He is happy and naughty in a very nice way. We cannot but thank the Lord for these lovely possessions. We enjoy them more and more. Casper is such a proud father. It is a joy to see him with Betsy on his arm. He never complains when one of the children cries at night and is always willing to help me. Betsy fell down some stairs the other day and Casper heard her crying and ran from the workshop to comfort her in a way that never fails. He took her on his arm and showed her the pictures on the wall. He has an unlimited imagination in telling stories about what happened in the houses of the picture on the wall. Father had found another house. The Riefenberg, where he had his jewelry store, was a poor location, so he found a house close to the Queen's Palace. Many more people passed this shop window and soon had more and better customers. Once, a footman came from the palace with a clock that needed repair. What a privilege. When you worked in some way for the palace, you received a sign for your shop. By appointment to the court. Father had two workmen in his shop, a well-trained clockmaker and a teenage apprentice. The royal clock had been repaired and was being packaged when the boy who was holding it in his hand slipped and the clock fell to the floor, broken. The boy looked at Father, who stood up, took a glass of water, and gave it to the white-faced boy. The boy was expecting a scolding or worse, but he heard Father say, Boy, you've had a shock. Drink some water. They were able to repair the clock, and something very special happened in the heart of that boy. He became Father's best watchmaker. Later, the boy became very ill, and Father visited him regularly, and the boy died with his hand in Father's. I'm going to Jesus were his last words. An oak tree in the storm. Father was not always on top of his problems. Some of his letters tell of the times when he was depressed and discouraged. Debts and financial difficulties often pressured him, and the house was often empty when Mother and some of the children went to the country to recover from their frequent illnesses. He wrote, June 4th, 1889. My dear wife, I do not want to make you wait any longer for news. Next Tuesday, I have an appointment with Mr. H., who has recommended me as somebody who would be able to help us. Once again, I have hoped that I will be delivered from these heavy burdens. I really feel like someone who is being tortured. I need to talk with somebody about my desperate financial situation. I can say without exaggeration that I have suffered deeply during these past few weeks. However, there is a divine plan behind it all, and through suffering we will get to glory. It has been the same way with you, my dear wife, and even though deliverance does not come quickly, it does and will come. I know I'm not always convinced of this truth, but I believe that God will show his faithfulness. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be free from these burdens once again? The Lord will provide. I hope to receive some good news from you. Kiss and hug my dear Betsy and William and receive a warm embrace for yourself from your loving husband. Mother wrote in her diary, New Year's Eve, 1889. It has been more than a year since I wrote in this book. I intended writing time and again, but I could not. Oh, it is still so hard to write about our beloved baby, our dear Hendrik Jan, whom we had received from the Lord on September the 12th, 1888, and whom we had to give back again on March the 6th, 1889. It was such a joy to see how nicely Betsy and William treated him, how he smiled in response to them. What a grief it was to have to lose him. What a dreadful time it was, and our house is so empty. The Lord helped us, though, and what a comforting thing it is that we already have a child in heaven, 
and that we will see him again. It was touching to see how sad Betsy was. She missed him so much that she could not eat and said over and over again, the dear Lord must bring Hendrick back again. They were both sitting next to Casper on the couch on Sunday afternoon and asked one question after the other. Does Hendrick see the dear Lord Jesus often? Yes, Jesus loves him so much. Is Hendrick sometimes ill like he was here? No, nobody is ever ill in heaven. Will Hendrick be coming back soon? No, Hendrick will not be coming back to us, but we will go to him when Lord Jesus takes us to heaven. When will he do that? We don't know, but Jesus knows exactly when he's going to do it. New Year's Eve, 1890. Another year has passed by, a very difficult year, full of cares and pain, and we move house again. We are especially thankful to have been spared for another year and that we are a dear little daughter richer in our Noli. We are so very happy with her. She is such a great comfort and diversion in recent dark days. She is such a darling with her blue eyes and dark hair and a really intelligent child. I think she will be as quick as Betsy. Father's difficulty with forgiveness. When Father saw the Germans during World War II put a group of Jews, including old people and children, into police cars, he said, Oh, that poor country. They have touched the apple of God's eye. Pity for Germany, love for his enemies. Was Father always like that? No. It was difficult for Father to forgive. He had very high standards to live up to and expected the same of other Christians. He could hardly bear it when Christians did things that were wrong, but then acted piously. When he was a young man starting his business in Amsterdam, Father didn't know how to run a shop. A Christian man, a wholesaler in watches and clocks, gave him advice. Father trusted the man completely and followed his advice, but the man deceived him. I do not know the details, for this happened before I was born, but I know that Father nearly went bankrupt several times because of the behavior of that so-called Christian. Years later, when we passed this man's house, Father talked about the matter in an almost unforgiving way. Later, when the man experienced terrible difficulty with his family and his business, Father said it was because when a Christian behaves badly, he can expect immediate discipline. I am so glad that God worked a miracle in my father's heart so that through his love, father could forgive. He needed that training when the Germans, who said, we've come to protect Holland, murdered members of his beloved family. I remember walking with father through Harlem at that time. We saw swastika flags everywhere, and I asked, Father, are we allowed to hate a flag? He answered, I believe we are, but not to hate the people. Hate the sins, love the sinners. Next time, we'll be on Chapter 5, Return to the Bayer. I love you, I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.